Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hi everyone, my name is Chiara Morelli and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have with us Alberta Friedberg. She graduated in the University of Copenhagen in 2021 and after that she completed an externship in Estonia at the Equine University Hospital and then an externship at the Ensager Equine Hospital in Denmark where she's currently working as an equine clinician. Hi Alberta, how are you today? Hi, thank you. Very well. How about you? I'm all right, thank you. So today we're going to talk about the hygienic aspect in the management of strangles. So what I'd like to ask Alberta to start with is what is strangles and what kind of pathogen is related to it? Strangles is one of the most frequently diagnosed infectious diseases in, uh, in horses all over the world, actually. Um, the pathogen related to it is um, a streptococcus. It's streptococcus equi with the subspecies equi. Um, it's infection in the upper airway and associated especially to the lymph nodes. Um, it's getting its infamous name uh, from actually the, the clinical signs of the airway obstruction that they place in some horses where they basically suffocate, why it's called strangles. Um, yeah. I think you guys must see it a lot as well. Yeah, definitely. Here in the UK, uh, I think every year I'll probably see at least three outbreaks. Um, I think the fact that it's not a notifiable disease also, it makes it quite difficult to keep it under control. Exactly. And what kind of horses are susceptible to it and what is the pathogenesis of it? Uh, actually, every horse is susceptible to, to strangles, which makes it very difficult to contain. Uh, of course, the naive horses and the younger horses are, are much more susceptible and has a, it's going to display a way worse um, way of the disease than the, the older horses, uh, especially the older horses that has already had the disease earlier. But uh, all horses are susceptible. Also, after having the disease, they are susceptible again. Um, and how does it get transmitted between each horse? It can get transmitted in, in a lot of ways, both directly and indirectly. Directly, of course, um, with all of the organic matters from the horses uh, in the stable and when they are on the pasture together, uh, in, the, in the water cups and everything, if they share these on the pasture as well. Uh, indirectly, actually, from us humans that are transmitting it with, via our clothes and all of the equipment in the stable that we use for the horses. Uh, if a horse goes to another stable and another horse gets into the old stable, they can transmit it again via the, the organic matter. It, it can actually survive quite a while. So, um, so it's definitely all around everything we use and everything we wear that we've got to be aware that we can transmit this disease. Yeah. Um, it enters when, when the horse gets it actually through the mouth, um, through the airways, and then it attaches to the cells, uh, mostly in the naso and the oropharyngeal tonsils, uh, and also on the ventral surface of the, of the palate. However, it doesn't really colonize in these areas, it, it goes deeper to the lymphoid tissue uh, quite quickly, actually. Within three hours of infection, you can, um, you can already see it in the lymph nodes. 
So it goes to the submandibular and the retropharyngeal lymph nodes where it also replicates and trigger the inflammatory response. Um, however, the, the virus is, is, is quite um, developed. It has a very, very good virulence factors. Uh, it has a hyaluronic acid capsule and also some super antigens on the surface and some M-like proteins on the surface, which makes it very difficult for the, for the phagocytosis to, to happen. Uh, and this is why ac acutely we find with the clinical signs, uh, if we go there, we have the fever right away, actually, only after replication. And the replication was only after three hours of infection. So the fever onsets quite quickly. Um, yeah, and then, of course, you can see the, on the neutrophilia on the blood, blood work. Uh, however, later on, if we go a little bit after the incubation time, um, we have mucopurulent uh, nasal discharge. That's definitely one of the most common signs of, uh, of strangles. And, of course, the swollen lymph nodes, uh, anorexia or reluctant to eat, that's also a very, very common sign because of the swollen lymph nodes. Um, then we have depression uh, and, of course, the, the developments of uh, chondroids in the guttural pouches, yes. Okay, and treatment-wise, what kind of treatment can we uh, try for these horses? Um, <clears throat> I think it's very difficult to, to say exactly what kind of treatment because it varies a lot whether the horse is acute or whether it's chronic, whether it's... Uh, uh, with has developed chondroids in the guttural pouches. But definitely, if you have a horse with very swollen lymph nodes, it's important to, to use some kind of topical softening agent or you can actually use uh, mucumust or equimucin. I think you, you guys have equimucin. It's an acetyl cysteine uh, that, you, that you basically can get in with the Foley catheter. And you can soften the chondroids a little if they have chondroids in the guttural pouches. Um, and that way you can be able to flush those out to make sure that it's not staying a subclinical carrier. Um, but definitely, if, if there's swollen lymph nodes, you have to do something to mature these. And, and that's easily, it's, it's definitely better done topically from the outside uh, to, to, put, to put hot packaging or something on it. So regarding the use of antibiotics, is still a topic really debated in literature. What is your approach regarding that? Um, with the with Streptococcus equi, it's actually easy because it's sensitive to almost all antibiotics with the exception of aminoglycosides. However, it's debatable whether you should use antibiotic treatment uh, for the strangled horses. Uh, antibiotic treatment can be, be very well used if you have a very acute horse um, that has very severe signs and you need to, to get this down or if it has a peritonitis or something uh, from the strangles, uh, if it has a bestart strangle, you, you, you kind of need to use antibiotic treatment. However, it, uh, the consequences of using antibiotics uh, on strangled horses is definitely that you won't get the immunity afterwards that you otherwise will get from the horses being infected with strangles. And also it often gives a very prolonged um, a prolonged uh, scenario with the strangles instead of it getting over it more quickly. Um, definitely. Yeah, I think antibiotics is 
I certainly, with all the antibiotic resistance we're getting nowadays, I think we should really be very uh, cautious about the use of antibiotics. And in exactly. fairness, 90% of these horses, they heal without the use of them. Exactly. Um, and then I That think is a very that, important point to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of the horses I've seen we did, they get over just with some anti-inflammatories really. Um, and then, yeah, there is... It's debatable where to use them, especially if you see lymphadenopathy. You yes. might just stop the development of the abscess and prolong it. So, yeah, I, I don't tend to use them, but I think it's important to know that um, sometimes we need them, as you said, with a faster form. Um, I would like to highlight again that the, that the treatment with antibiotics is very debatable, as you just said. Uh, we don't use it as well that much, just as, as you. Uh, however, we do use it if, if there is a peritonitis or any other uh, indication of, uh, of using antibiotics. Also, we got to remember that if you have an abscessation in the horse, you might not get the antibiotic into the abscess. So it might not help where you actually want it to help. Uh, you only get the prolonged uh, period of, of strangles and the missing immunity. However, I, I do think it's important to, to still treat these horses. Uh, a lot of the horses has a very high fever and gets reluctant to eat, as I said uh, earlier. So it's, it's important to use something that can keep the pain down and can keep the, the fever down. So we use uh, NSAIDs for this and then soaked food as well so they can swallow the food easily uh, so that they won't get... Um, secondary problems uh, from, from not eating for, for a long time. And then again, I think it's very important to, to emphasize that hygiene is, is a part of the treatment for strangle. It's a very huge part of the treatment. Yeah, no, definitely. We, whenever there is an infection disease, I think it, the must is hygiene. And sometimes it's the most difficult part, especially when these cases are managed in the field where not qualified personnel is dealing with them. Um, so once the main symptoms um, are shown and the horse starts to improve and the symptoms goes away, we do know that a few percent of these horses, they can become persistent carriers. But what is actually a persistent carrier? Oh, yeah, a persistent carrier is a huge problem, actually, within strangles. Uh, the persistent carriers are subclinical, and they keep on shedding the bacteria, keep on having the possibility to infect new horses, but they fail. So they kind of fail to clear the abscess material. Typically, it's in the guttural pouches or the sinuses. Um, so they have this incomplete drainage of the guttural pouches. From what reason they can keep shedding bacteria to the other horses or to newcomers in the herd, um, keep on going for the keep keep the outbreak going. Kind of, they can they can have it for years. Uh, some even says for lifetime uh, if they are not uh, cleared uh, manually by by helping from the veterinarians. Um, so so that's a huge huge issue. Um, because you cannot detect the horses as they are subclinical. They show no clinical signs. They, they clear up from the fever and they are acting 
you know, as, as a normal horse in the herd and you can use it for whatever you use the horse for. Um, but they, they have this very big risk. And actually, this is one of the biggest problems also in, uh, in competition areas because a lot of horses come to competition and then they, they are shedding bacteria. So, so that way we are really getting the, the disease out there and, and creating new outbreaks as well, definitely. Yeah, no, this is, a, I think, is the biggest concern whenever it comes to strangles. We all know how strangle looks like and how long yes. it can be. The thing is that it doesn't just affect the amount of time when we can see the horse with symptoms. And um, how do we test for persistent carriers? Well, we have different ways of uh, testing. The problem is, you know, that it's a hidden uh, reservoir uh, while, while demonstrating no clinical signs. So we got to get our testing material from the, the issued area, uh, from the area where, where we have these chondroids typically. Uh, we can use swaps, nasal swaps, nasopharyngeal swaps. However, I don't personally recommend this way of testing because we don't really get into the guttural pouches with the swabs. So, so we might miss a lot of the carriers, even though it is with the best intent that we are, that we are testing. Usually we do an asopharyngeal uh, or a guttural pouch lavage because that way we get the material for our tests right from the area that we are expecting something to still be alive. Um, and then you can also do endoscopy to see if you have to, to visually see if you actually have chondroids in the guttural pouches. Yeah. Um, so we can do, after you have got done the lavage, you can do your qPCR or your culture, um, depending on what it is you want to see. Uh, with the qPCR, you get, if, is, there, is there bacteria in here, but you don't really get whether the bacteria is uh, alive or dead. Um, but yeah, you, you will definitely get an indication. Is there something here? And if it's positive, then you just got to treat it as a, as a shedding horse or as an infective horse, definitely. So, Alberto, you mentioned both uh, the culture and the qPCR. Um, what are the differences between these two methods and how can they help us um, detecting and treating carriers? Uh, as I mentioned, when you do the qPCR, you get an indication of whether the horse is infected still. Um, but you don't get is uh, you don't get the the point of whether it's alive bacteria or whether it's dead bacteria you're finding in the horse, and that of course has a <laughs> that's a big, big difference in that. Uh, you get that from the culture. So if you culture the the test you're having, you can get whether it's alive or a dead bacteria. Um, however, still, if you have a negative culture and a positive qPCR. As I said before, you, you really still need to, to think of this horse as an infective horse, as a horse that can shed bacteria to the other and create uh, a new outbreak. So, so you still need to isolate this horse and, and do further testing. We usually recommend uh, doing three tests uh, with a seven days interval just to make sure. Um, so, so yeah, and, and of course you, you might not be able to do the culture for, for every time you're doing a qPCR. Um, so, so do the culture when you have a, when, when you need some further information uh, and wait until you, you have a negative QPCR to expect the horse to be, uh, to be free. 
but but also always if you really want to test the horse at the end and you want to know this horse is completely free you you need to do both the qpcr and the culture in case of an outbreak how would you deal with it when I start thinking about an outbreak, I would go back and think about the clinical signs we talked about in the beginning. Um, if you remember, I said that the fever can onset quite quickly after the replication, which is, uh, is already three hours of infection. Um, so I would start definitely do uh, temperature, temperature monitoring. Uh, that, is, that is a key to keeping down the, the out, outbreak, definitely. I would do that... Uh, twice twice every day uh, to make sure that we have this we kind of have this window from the fever until the horse starts shedding bacteria. So we have two days where we have the fever onset quite quickly and then we have two days before the horse starts shedding bacteria and, and can transmit the bacteria to other horses. Uh, I think it's really important to use this two-day window, uh, very wisely to keep down the the out, outbreak uh, in the herd, so so I would I would do that as a key, uh, as as my key thing in in, in my uh, my management, and then of course I would um, as I suggest in the article I would use my traffic light system, uh, my color coding I would create I would I would divide the the premises in into three areas we have what we usually call a green area and uh, amber or yellow area. And a red area. Um, we divide everything, both the stables, pastures, stalls, staff, equipment, everything is divided. So you have a green area with the healthy horses that has no fever, has no clinical signs, nothing that indicates that it has been effect- infected. Then you have the amber zone with the horses that has shown uh, the, the one clinical sign of race and temperature. Um, you put them in an amber zone and then you have the red zone for the horses that are infected, uh, that's showing clinical sign and has a high temperature as well. Um, so, so that's the horses that you're definitely sure that these horses are infected and they are completely isolated from all of the other horses. Um, it is important that if you, if you don't have staff enough to, to do one staff uh, from one zone and another staff to, to another zone, then you got to remember what's di- what direction you use the, the staff in. So you, you've got to take from the green zone to the amber to the red zone so that the staff end up in the infected zone. That way you, you don't risk the staff taking the, the infection to the healthy horses. Um, that's very important as well. And what about testing during an outbreak? What would you recommend to do? Uh, I would definitely recommend that, uh, the, of course, when they're in the red zone, you, you, you can start testing right away, but that will only use a lot of, uh, a lot of the customer's money. So I, I recommend waiting at least five to six weeks um, before starting, starting testing. Um, that way you know that they can be past the, the period of, of, of infection uh, it might last longer, of course, if they're still having clinical signs, then wait, because it's definitely still sick and still shedding uh, bacteria in the organic matter. So, so it makes no sense starting to test before they're not showing any signs. But again, as we talked about before, be sure 
to detect all of the persistent carriers before you you let them out into the herd. Otherwise, you will just start an entirely new uh, new breakout. Um, also, I think we have talked about uh, earlier. We talked about why I put some horses into the amber zone and not directly to the red zone. Uh, I think it's important to have this middle zone, mostly because if you have a horse that has a rise in temperature, the rise in temperature, of course, when you have an outbreak, you, you, you're quick to think, okay, this rise in temperature, it's, it, it's got strangles. But you got to remember that you can see rises in temperature from so many other things and if it's in the beginning of the outbreak, they can have just been to competition. There can be something else. They can be overloaded for, for other reasons. So if you if you have a horse with a rise in temperature and it's not from strangles and you put it directly in the red zone with all of the, for sure, infected horses, then this horse will get infected as well. And if it's already fighting with something within, in the immune system, it might... It might have a harder uh, time fighting the, the strangles infection as well. So I think this middle zone is, is very important. Yeah, no, I think the traffic light system, especially not only for strangles in general, whenever you have an infection disease, is really vital. Yes, definitely. the cost of dealing with more sick horses it's definitely not comparable to how economically um, valuable it is to just separate them and wait. Exactly. Um, but no, yeah, you do have a very fair point there. Uh, temperature is not specific of strangles. So yeah, definitely the last thing we want to do is put a horse that is already fighting with another disease into the strangles group where he can surely get it if he hasn't got it yet so yeah i think it's really important that you mentioned that um so the, the bloods I, I don't know if Denmark um they're common but here in the uk we do quite often you as an analyze a blood test to test for strangles yeah what is your experience with that um i think actually the blood tests are quite Fine, if you do it for screening, for example, if you have a large competition facility and you go with the horses for a lot of competition, there is a lot of risk in that, especially if you take your competition horses into the stable that you're going to. I, I, I think that's a really funny thing that the people absolutely have to take the horses into the new stable. Keep them out of the stable, that's less risk. And then, of course, screen them if they come back, if you are in an area where there's high risk. Uh, I will point out again that I'm from Denmark <laughs> and I'm a clinician. So in Denmark, we don't usually, as a routine, screen horses that are coming back from, from competition because we don't see this very large problem with strangles. We have some outbreaks and we contain them pretty well. Um, but I would definitely recommend in other parts of the world where this is a much bigger problem, screen the horses. Um, keep the competition horses away from the younger horses in the stable and from the broad mares to not increase the risk of, of horses that doesn't need the risk. Uh, so screen them with an ELISA test, for, in for instance. That's, that's, that's a good idea. You just got to remember that it doesn't show whether the horse is having the infection now or have had the infection. So so basically when you have done the test, if it's negative, that's good, that's really good. But if it's it's positive, 
you still need to do the, the culture or the qPCR. Uh, I definitely think the culture and the qPCR are the, the test of choice if you want to be certain. Uh, and a combination of those uh, is the best. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I do like the ELISA blood test. Um, yeah, yeah, I think too. it's also important to say that with persistent carriers, the, the ELISA test can come back negative, but actually yes. they are still persistent carriers. So we just need to be aware of the limits of each test, really. And exactly. Regarding biosecurity measures during an outbreak, uh, what is your approach? Um, my biosecurity measures is definitely clean everything. Do the color code system first and then clean everything. Clean stables, equipment, clothes on the, uh, on the staff, everything. You can carry it on everything. Uh, you need to get the organic matter off before you start disinfecting. If you disinfect upon organic matter, uh, of course, some of it will, will still help a lot, but, but you can risk that there is just a little bit of bacteria left. And, and if you do all of this work, then just clean out the organic matter before you move on to the disinfectants, definitely. Um, there is a lot of talk. Uh, I know you're going to ask what disinfectant to use, so there is a lot of talk about that. Um, what I found uh, when I did, did the review is uh, that betadine is uh, definitely the best to kill everything. Uh, it's super effective uh, on all of the surfaces that we have in a stable, both on, on glass, on rubber, on wood. It's super effective. Uh, however, it's way too expensive for a large-scale use. So for that, we need to go to other disinfectants. Um, what I found was that chlorhexidine, glycolides, and uh, grutar aldehydes are really good, and phenolic uh, disinfectants are very, very good for large-scale um, disinfection. Definitely because it's, it's effective and it's a little bit cheaper than the betadine. Uh, so, so that's definitely the, the ones that you've got to go for. Um, what we do at the hospital that I'm working in, we have a stable only for uh, isolation and for both the amber and the red zone. And then we have another stable for the green zone so that all of the horses are divided. Uh, in the isolation stable, none of the horses can get in contact. There is no contact with equipment or anything in there. Uh, the people don't go into the horses from the, from the middle, middle area. We only access the horses from the outside to make sure that nothing gets from one horse to another. Um, when we clean out, if we have an isolation horse, we steam clean all of the, all of the stables uh, that we have had red horses in, uh, the isolation horses. We steam clean all of the equipment, uh, everything that has been in there, basically. And then we use a disinfectant called Virconess. It's a combination of different disinfectants. And it's very useful. We, we did our own little test afterwards with, the, with cultures as well to make sure that everything is gone, both from cribs and from buckets and water cups and everything. Uh, and then we let it dry uh, for 10 to 30 minutes. Uh, and then we, we spool it over with water. And then we leave the stable at that one store for, for just 
about two days before we put a new horse in. I know that's a lot of work, and two days is a long time to have an empty stable, but uh, but that makes sure that that there is nothing that is gonna survive this for the next horse. Yeah, no, again, definitely it's a long time. But then if you think about an outbreak, I think exactly. that is always worth all the precautions we normally recommend for strangles can just be a real life saver especially if you have a big herd and you want to prevent an outbreak um, the economical impact and the welfare impact on these horses is going to be dramatic otherwise what about quarantine for horses affected by strangles how do you uh, normally perform that um of course, the horses that you know are infected, you should definitely quarantine those uh, at least uh, for 21 days because that's how how long it takes to get the the three tests um, with a seven days interval. Uh, and then, of course, a little bit extra to get the results of the test unless you can do them in-house. Um, but also, I think that any new horse that are coming into, uh, into our herd, uh, they should definitely come in with a with a history of uh, infection, with a vaccination book, uh, a history of, um, of of any any anything else from the stable that it's coming from, um, what the risks are, and then you should ideally you should uh, quarantine all new horses coming into into a herd to make sure that there is there is nothing there. Uh, again, in Denmark we don't routinely quarantine all horses before letting them into a herd. Uh, we check up on worms, uh, we check up on vaccination status, and, and that's basically what we do before letting it into the herd. Uh, but I would definitely recommend this to, to anyone that is afraid of getting strangles into the premises, definitely. Yeah, no, again, it's such an easy thing to do. Exactly. And it, again, if we then consider the um, illness that strangle can cause and the economical impact on people, I think it's definitely worth to do that rather than risking to have an outbreak. Yes. Um, what about the vaccine? Uh, Vaccine-wise, we, we have a few vaccines. We've also had some that has been taken back, but we have, we have a few vaccines. We have uh, Equalis Strep E, uh, which is a live modified strain um, of Streptococcus equi. Uh, it can be used for horses down to four months of age. However, the problem here is that we have no deep diva capabilities, so we cannot differentiate the horses that are uh, vaccinated from the horses that are not vaccinated. Um, also, it has been interfering a little bit um, with the with the ELISA test, so uh, so in that way, it's it's a little bit difficult to use, and and it's also the injection is to the inside of the upper lip, and that can sometimes uh, be a little bit um, challenging, I will say, <laughs> to get into a horse. Um, then we have the strategy, the vaccine strategy of the Equalis. It's it says if you have to do it exactly as it says, it says two vaccinations with a four week interval. And then you have the onset of immunity two weeks after the, the second of the basic vaccinations. And then you have to revaccinate every three months. Um, but there is a priming response that maintained for up to six months. If, uh, if I think some veterinarians go a little bit uh, loose on the, on the three months, but, but that is if you've got to follow the, uh, 
what what the, the guidelines. Yeah, the guidelines exactly. Then we have a, a relatively, I would say, relatively new vaccine, uh, the Strangvac. It's um, combined from eight proteins from the Streptococcus equi, uh, and it can be used to, for horses down to eight months of age. But it has a very good uh, effectiveness on the horses, uh, and it has a very fine diva capability. So, um, so that's definitely something I would recommend looking for diva capabilities. And it does not cross interact with the, with the ELISA. Uh, it's also uh, intramuscular injection, which makes it way easier. And the strategy is a little bit like, uh, like the Equalis. It's two vaccination with a four week interval and then a booster after two months. The protection starts two weeks after the second vaccination. And then you got to revaccinate every two months. So it's a little bit, I know at least in Denmark, we have a rule that if the horse has been vaccinated, you have to wait. Uh, you cannot compete within seven days of the vaccination. So if you got to vaccinate every two months and then you have seven days without competing, uh, that's a lot of time not being able to compete over the competition uh, season. Uh, but again... You got to keep this up against the the consequences of of an of an outbreak and and think about how many outbreaks is in the area and what are the risks in the areas that you're that you're in. Right. So thank you so much, Alberto, for uh, everything, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, uh, and and thank you for for letting me talk about this uh, this very exciting topic. Oh, no, I think it's really important that everyone is up to date with Strangles, really. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.